Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, November the 3rd. We begin with a look at the ongoing Emergencies Act inquiry, specifically at the question of how we, as Canadians, can effectively balance the right to protest with the rule of law. We tackle the topic with Jeff Callahan, Professor of Political Science at the University of Windsor. Next, the 2022 FIFA World Cup kicks off in just over two weeks, and Canada will be represented for the first time in 36 years, yet... The Qatar World Cup has been mired in controversy and human rights concerns. We discuss the situation with Alan McDougall, professor of history from the University of Guelph. You know what they say, one person's trash is another person's treasure. We learn about the work Alberta-based company Varma Energy is doing to transform garbage into energy. And finally, it's our monthly check-in with our friends from Parker PR. This time out, Ellen Parker, CEO and owner of Parker PR, shares some tips on how to make your business sparkle this holiday season by giving back to the community. Dangerous place for us. People were dropping marbles from high-rises. They were throwing eggs. Citizens of Ottawa were threatening to run us over. That was a clip, part of the testimony from Pat King, one of the organizers of the so-called Freedom Convoy that paralyzed downtown Ottawa last February. The Emergencies Act inquiry continues this week. Joining us to discuss how we can balance the right to protest with the rule of law is Jeff Callahan, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Windsor. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Sue and Andy. Glad to be here. Appreciate your time. We heard it in that clip. The citizens of Ottawa were certainly fed up with the Freedom Convoy protesters by, well, probably a short time into it. Do do you believe the use of the Emergencies Act was justified, or do you think that it violated Canadians' right to protest? Oh, you got right into it. (laughs) Yeah, I did. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm going to have to wait till the inquiry is over. I don't know. It seems with the testimony that's come out to this point that there may have been other options available to the federal government, Um, but there's still a lot of testimony to be heard. Um, And gosh, these things are really a judgment call Um, when you're in power. I know that it's really strong legislation, uh, the way that I think that it was used. Uh, I believe was appropriate, in fact. Um, I don't think that they overused and over and abused it when they actually put it t- into effect. But in fact, invoking it is itself a huge step. So we have to be really careful um, to uh, get to the, to the, to, to the bottom of, of whether or not they were justified invoking it. That's for sure. Professor Callahan, the big picture question from my viewpoint is, you know, this country of ours... People move here from across the globe because of what we have going on, because of our rights and freedoms and our rights to protest and speak up. And uh, Canadians, we, we've always known that's what we have. But how do we balance that between uh, the rule of law and infringing on other people's rights? Because in this case, it's uh, the spotlight has been shown on this, uh, didn't work out so well. Yeah, Andy, that's the trick. And I'm afraid I don't have an answer for you. I don't think there is one is the problem. Because when people come here, you're exactly right, um, for two things. They come here because they have individual liberties that are protected by the law, but they also come here because the rule of law is so strong and, you know, it's, it's generally observed, uh, so they feel safe <laughs> and, and they feel secure to move around and, and you know, do, make their plans and they, they feel secure that they can get those plans executed. And that's a really important thing for a political society to... Uh, to establish, uh, but certainly pushing back on that are individual rights. And of course, sometimes those rights 
uh, are going to look like the right to protest. And then they're going to push back against this stability. Oftentimes, you know, the way that the, uh, the Freedom Convoy did uh, in Ottawa, disrupting that kind of stability that's been created by the rule of law. So that's really, that's the balance we have to strike. And I'm afraid post, uh, sorry, uh, prior to actually engaging in an assessment of the facts of, the, of, of each case, we don't really have a, a clear answer of how to balance those. And it seemed like, you know, as you kind of mentioned there, Professor, that a bit of a shelf life to that protest, right? I think people were okay with the the protest in the beginning because we do believe in this country. You've got the right to free speech and right to protest. But then that wore off really quickly because it was just a massive disruption of everybody's everyday life. So do protests, do you think, have a shelf life? Is there any sort of, you know, rule of thumb that could go along with that? I do think protests have a shelf life. I don't think there's a general rule of thumb. I think that every protest has its own shelf life, and um, it's not exact. So even even in, in the individual case, it's not exact. For example, the Freedom, protest, uh, the freedom uh, Convoy protest, some people were calling for a week, right? We'll let it go for a week. Uh, others were saying, no, let's, let's leave it for 10 days. And then it kept going, right, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks. But the longer the period is pushed, the more the situation changes and it becomes more difficult for law enforcement to, in fact, mobilize against that protest. Uh, you know, the, the feelings and the, the attitudes of the protesters themselves become more entrenched in what they're doing. Uh, various means of support might start funneling in. So there's a lot of different things that happen, you know, and it can happen day to day. Which means these things, I don't know, it just it really depends on the circumstances that, that are bearing on the protest in question. And I guess to what you just spoke about, Professor Callahan, is this a case that we wouldn't be talking about this Emergencies Act inquiry if enforcement uh, had been there earlier, if government officials would have acted on this earlier? I know it's easy to say hindsight 2020, but is it just a matter of timing? I think so. Um, we saw that Toronto mobilized in advance um, of the protests, and what happened in Toronto was a pretty organized um, demonstration. So they shut off, they cut off streets, they cut off access to streets, and you know the, the people in Toronto were disrupted. I, I, I was in Toronto at the time, and you know traffic was was very difficult to get around because of the way they had, they had cordoned off areas of downtown. But that's, that's all part of this right to protest. You've got to go through these disruptions in your ordinary way of, of getting around in your ordinary life. Uh, what happened at, in Ottawa really was kind of unprecedented that these trucks were just allowed to kind of park along Parliament Hill. And there didn't seem to be much planning going on in advance at all, uh, which is strange given that, you know, from, from all of what we know at this point, um, it was well broadcast that they were coming. <laughs> Can we look at sort of the, the inquiry itself then into the Emergencies Act? Do you think that it will change the use of it in the future? What kind of outcomes are we expecting to get out of this inquiry? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't, I don't quite know these things. These things are tricky. They, people who are really engaged and involved in the inquiry seem to have a lot of um, strong opinions, but I'm not sure. And then, and then those opinions are really made their their voice strongly, and so they, they filter through social media and uh, through the through you know the uh, the popular media. And 
sometimes they're a bit more amplified than the way that the ordinary Canadian is looking at it. I'm not sure how much the ordinary Canadian is actually following this inquiry. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if it's going to change people's opinions uh, much at all. If if people were in support of the Freedom Convoy, I'm guessing that they they will still believe after the inquiry that the federal government was not justified in invoking the Emergencies Act. Uh, and, and I would suspect the same thing on the other side of the aisle as well, that people who were, you know, a little bit sick of the Freedom Convoy probably didn't necessarily align with the messaging of the Freedom Convoy. Um, they might say, no, no, this was a good use of the Emergencies Act. It was short-lived, it was targeted, it was direct, and it actually got the job done. Mm-hmm. Professor, thanks for your time. Thanks for the discussion this morning. I really appreciate being here. Thanks, guys. Take care. That is Jeff Callahan, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Windsor. FIFA, the international governing body of the Association of Football, has a history of corruption. We will talk about that coming up. Canada's soccer, though, adding its voice to the chorus of countries, uh, joining the concerns about human rights violations at the Qatar 2022 World Cup. Joining us to talk about it is Alan McDougall, Professor of History at the University of Guelph. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning. Okay, so let's begin with FIFA then, the international governing body. History of corruption there. What's the sort of Coles notes on the background of FIFA's controversy? Well, FIFA is the world governing body of soccer, and certainly since the 1970s, when FIFA transformed itself into pretty much a global business empire, uh, it's been the site of many stories of corruption, embezzlement, fraud, and I guess a a culture of entitlement surrounding FIFA's uh, leading figures in the executive committee. And um, a lot of that burst into the public arena in 2015 when a number of FIFA executives were arrested. Um, The head of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, was forced to resign. And so there's been a sort of mire of corruption around the organization that is found hard to shake off, I guess. Professor McDougall, you know, we we, we have that piece of the puzzle. The other piece is you're awarding Qatar the World Cup. And it's not like we, it's not like Qatar just got into this I, I guess vein of uh, not being a good uh, a good actor when it comes to human rights. So, so how was it awarded the World Cup? If we know the history of this uh, of this uh, region. Well, this ties back to the theme of FIFA corruption, the process rewarding the 2018 and 2022 World Cups, which have gone to Russia in 2018 and now Qatar this year, were mired in some of this FIFA corruption. There was lots of controversy around the bidding process, and Qatar winning the 2022 award over the United States was seen at the time as surprising and controversial. There was a lot of talk about money paid to FIFA executives, and when the scandal burst in 2015, um, many FIFA executive committee members were forced to resign. Some of them even faced jail time. So right from the beginning of Qatar being awarded the World Cup in 2010, there's been this sort of um, sort of bad vibe around the entire tournament, and that's continued really until the present day. Professor, what exactly are the human rights concerns? Is it for those going to watch? Is it for the athletes themselves? 
I think the two main strands of the human rights concerns from the sort of outside perspective, number one is the treatment of migrant workers. Qatar is a very small country uh, in which the vast majority of its population are migrant workers or expatriates. Um, 90% of the population in Qatar uh, are not originally Qataris. And so there's this issue of the treatment of migrant laborers, particularly in the building of the eight stadiums that are being put together for the World Cup at great expense. There's been various conflicting reports about the numbers of deaths uh, in the stadium construction, but big organizations, influential organizations like Amnesty International have condemned the labor situation in Qatar. So that's one element. The second element is Qatar's uh, political regime, I guess, and particularly its treatment of minorities and whether all visitors to Qatar, uh, particularly sexual minorities, will be welcome in that country. So they're the two main strands of concern, I think, heading into the tournament. How are countries responding or how have they responded ahead of the World Cup and the human rights concerns surrounding Qatar? Are there any calls to boycott or some countries literally not taking part? I mean, there have been the odd calls for boycotts. Some countries have been more vocal than others in Europe, Norway, for example, and Germany. Germany has organized or there's been a campaign to boycott Qatar in Germany. But the, the cold reality is that every major soccer-playing nation will be attending the World Cup, 32 countries in total, including Canada. And there's an element, I think, as I've said elsewhere this week, of virtue signaling in some of the statements from associations and federations and coaches and players about the tournament. It's great to bring attention to some of the problems in Qatar, but in the end, there's no real sign of a boycott. Everyone is going there to play. So uh, how much influence and power these statements have, I think, is open to debate. And there's certainly been some reaction in Qatar, increasing frustration that all of the negatives around the tournament are being seen, and there's not much positive support for possibly the tournament's ability to make changes in Qatar that might be, in the end, positive. Interesting. Uh, How much does it cost to host a World Cup? Curious about that. Hosting a World Cup is an extremely expensive business, and as we notice when we see now World Cups and Olympic Games, I mean, such is the vast cost of hosting them that uh, an increasingly small number of countries are willing to host, and it's often countries that are not democratic, um, that have access to natural resources like the Gulf states, like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, places like that. And so it's a vast undertaking to host a World Cup, and I mean, even just bidding for it in the case of uh, Qatar's bid for the World Cup cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Then you've got the infrastructure, the hosting, the hotels. Um, And Qatar's a small country. It's a wealthy country, but that wealth is unevenly distributed. And so it's a huge expense. And FIFA, the world governing body, will make huge profits from this tournament. The profits are there, Professor. FIFA, you know, getting the, the, the profits, and I'm thinking tourism in Qatar, getting that. The fans of the broadcast rights, the, the machine keeps rolling along, Professor McDougall. So what, what does it take to, to change this? Does it take a, a number of only a few key countries to pull out and boycott, or does it take a wholesale boycott by the uh, soccer-playing nations? I think... Yeah, if you really wanted fundamental change, there would have to be some sort of boycott of the tournament. Now, we've seen boycotts in sports history in Olympic Games, of course, during the Cold War. Um, We've seen the odd boycott of FIFA World Cups in 1966, for example. African nations boycotted the World Cup in England because they weren't given enough places in the tournament. So it has happened before in history. Whether it will happen now with the amount of money and the media profile of world soccer is open to debate. And I think this is where I have a bit of a problem with all of the statements coming out that they're all great, but in a way, it's a bit like being invited to a birthday party and telling your host, I'm going to come to the birthday party, but I don't like what you're wearing. I don't like the food or drinks you're serving, um, but I'm going to come and eat the food and uh, drink the drinks.
things anyway. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's a great analogy, and it sure seems that way. Thank you so much for the discussion this morning. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank Have you. A great day. Alan Bye. McDougall, professor of history at the University of Guelph. And it really does sort of harken back to discussions about the Olympics is what it yeah. really seems to me. You know, the IOC, everybody has always said they're just, they're on the take, they're corrupt, they're this, they're that. And, you know, countries being awarded the games and how much it actually costs and whether it's beneficial and who makes the money in the end. And here's here's what the analogy, and it might be just way off base, but when it comes to quote-unquote clean energy, and we do it better than anywhere in the world, uh, but there was enough of a, an uproar that we have basically diminished our production, as we know. If you're Canadian, if, particularly if you're in Alberta or Calgary, we know uh, that uh, that kind of action from outside uh, groups can, you know, uh, basically uh, uh, cripple an industry. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to human rights, it seems to me we don't have the same fervor. We don't have the same, uh, I guess, organization behind it. So, so that we can pay the soccer players, which, I mean, I haven't looked for a while. I know NBA salaries are... You know, you can get a $250 million contract. But I know that the world of footy players get paid more than NHL for sure, probably more than MLB. Mm-hmm. This is big money. Absolutely. Yeah. So big money will trump all that. Of course. So it's, but there's big money and energy. So I don't understand that disconnect. Money talks, and I suppose that's the bottom line, and, and corruption as well. And I think that maybe therein lies the difference, right? But, I mean, it's going ahead because these countries know it, soccer's important. A company is transforming waste to energy, a first of its kind in Canada, in fact. Joining us to discuss how garbage can be used to generate power is Sean Collins, CEO of Varma Energy. Good morning to you, Sean. Hey, good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for being here. Well, tell us first what Varma is, what you're all about, and and the work your company does. Yeah, uh, Varma, we're a waste energy project developer. We're trying to develop a portfolio of process facilities across Canada that do uh, combustion of municipal or industrial waste uh, and are built with integrated carbon capture and storage. So you sort of achieve the three wins of eliminating landfills, getting the energy back out of the waste, and putting all the carbon underground. Sean, when we see garbage or waste, what exactly do you mean, or is it does it encompass everything? So we use the language, we can be a bottom-up solution. We can take uh, essentially everything. Our parent company owns a two-stage combustion technology that's sort of fairly adaptable to whatever would show up on a garbage truck day-to-day. Generally, you want to be working in complement with your recycling and composting industries, though. If those are going well, those should be taking the things that are recyclable and compostable. And then we kind of catch everything bottom up that would otherwise go to a landfill. Awesome. Is there a leftover? Is there a remainder after this energy is generated? And what do we do with that? Yeah. So you have uh, you separate out metals at the start. So about four, four or five percent of our waste is usually metals that's recoverable. You can magnet and eddy current separate that. And then on the back end, uh, think of it kind of like a campfire. You, you're putting uh, sort of uh, combustible material into uh, a furnace in a gasification chamber, and you're getting ash out the bottom. You get about 18% of your weight of product comes out as ash, and that can go into that can go to a landfill. That can go into um, sort of certain types of composting or remediation materials. Uh, you can process it a little bit further to make it cement replacement. 
which is sort of a task of chasing. So uh, that's your biggest output is ash at the bottom. So what's the potential then here, Sean? Because if this is something that's never been done before, what are you seeing? What are you envisioning in, on the road forward? Yeah, um, a big part of our inspiration is that in Europe, you have 1,200 plus waste to energy facilities. Uh, in Canada, you have four and none in Alberta. Um, and so a bit of an obviousness to when you make the decision as policymakers to try to eliminate landfills, um, you generally lead to recycling, composting, and waste to energy. We're kind of arriving at that here. So we use the language like Canada could take dozens to hundreds of these facilities. Um, our initial objective is to build three, uh, each with an average ticket size of about $250 million. Wow. Uh, with uh, the unique operation uh, that you're telling us about and, uh, you know, scarcity of this kind of technology across the globe, would this, the market for your end product be outside the the uh, borders of Alberta? Are you looking beyond Alberta and maybe even Canada? Yeah, so our, our window is sort of set on North America as our container. So we're the first uh, overseas expansion for a Norwegian investment group called Green Transition Holding. Um, so they're based in Oslo and have a portfolio of businesses that have sort of been in uh, waste energy and district heating and carbon capture industries for decades. And so we're specifically set up to sort of package that up in the North American market, sort of first focus Alberta, then Canada, then the rest of North America. Um, huge advantages in Alberta and Edmonton, I would say. Uh, by far the best carbon capture story of pretty much anywhere in the world. And so uh, some logic in if you're going to do this type of project anywhere, doing it in proximity to industrial facilities and in proximity to carbon capture is, is really smart. So, Sean, do you have a facility site then for Varma Energy? Yeah, so we have two. Uh, we've already got two land options secured for two facilities and working on a third. Um, we've signed a letter of intent with the town of Innisfail to develop a 100,000 ton per year facility there. Um, also have an option with a large final emitter facility in the industrial heartland as well. Awesome. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, thanks for telling us all about it, Sean. We appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Really appreciate the audience today. Thanks. Sean Collins is CEO of Varma Energy. You can find out more about what they do at varma.ca, and that's V-A-R-M-E dot C-A. Tis the season, heading into winter and the holiday season. We've got some help to move you and your business through with success. Joining us now is Ellen Parker, CEO and owner of Parker PR. Good morning to you, Ellen. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Well, let's start with giving back. What are some of the ways companies can give back? Yeah, great questions. So number one, time and items. During the pandemic, people couldn't commit to going in and helping charities. But now that we can, it's totally great for companies to do their part. And it makes a real difference. And there's so many ways to do that. You can do pro bono work, give in-kind items for sponsorships and fundraising events, volunteers your team. Like I know you guys have been talking about National Sandwich Day. Recently, we went to Brown Bagging for Kids Calgary. And we donated and made sandwiches as a team. And it was such a fun, fun builder for our team, fun builder, group builder, and then also had immediate impact. Awesome. And that, yeah, another way, which I love, are office drives or even a home drive. So organize your own drive at your office or your home where you have people come and drop off toys, coats, food for the food bank, and do a little, uh, do a drive. 
Right now, the food bank is really short this year, so that's a great opportunity. And do fun things. You know, have a prize for the person who drops off the most cans of food or the most coats. And you can gather it all up, partner with an organization that accepts these items. Um, That's a really cool way to do it. Parker PR will be doing a coat drive that uh, we'll share with the community fairly soon here. And then even thinking about just our personal and professional networks. You know, we're all involved in so many things, whether it's kids, hockey, et cetera. Communicating what you're doing with your people in your professional community or your personal community, letting them know what you value, what you support, and sharing information with them. A lot of people say to me, oh, I had no idea that was happening. So just be mindful to communicate to your your personal network. And then lastly, around support is just ticket support. There's so many charity galas coming up. It's so exciting. This Friday is the celebration for the arts, the Mayor's Celebration for the Arts. We have the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation Candy Cane Gala coming up. So even purchasing tickets, purchasing a table for your team as a team builder, as a thank you. And then you get to also have food and entertainment and have a fun night out. Also in November, of course, is Movember. So there's another really fun way to contribute and uh, lots of ways online to help with that. Love it for sure. We have the Calgary Children's Foundation Radiothon coming up. So there's that as well for us. So I get it. There are so many wonderful charities that people can help out with and and make that sort of a team build, right? Um, Do you think, though, when someone gets involved in community work, should they talk about it? Should they publicize it? Or is that something you just kind of do on the side because it's important and it's the right thing? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I have a lot of people kind of say, oh, I don't want to say it. I don't want to boast. I don't want to brag. But, you know, we're really doing the community a disservice when we don't talk about it. We can communicate it on our social media channels, and it just reaches so many other people, especially if we're, again, tagging the organization. So I'm a strong believer of shouting it from the rooftops. You're also inspiring other people to want to do good community work when you're talking about it. And I mean, even your own children, like we want our children to aspire to do good work in the community. So having them hear us talking about it, I think it's invaluable. Good stuff. And again, it is the season to start making these plans. Ellen, thank you so much for your time and have a great Thursday. Yeah, you too, guys. Thank you so much. Have some great sandwiches at lunch. Promise. (laughs) Talk to you soon. We'll meet you at the sandwich joint. (laughs) Uh, Ellen Parker is CEO and owner of Parker PR. More of what she does at parkerpr.ca. Talking about different events as well, just wanted to give a quick mention for everybody that's listening. Just start thinking about this. We will, once again, we started at first annual, was last year. We'll do the Mitten Project again this year. We're collecting mittens and gloves for Be The Change YYC yeah. so that they can distribute it to people who are living in homelessness out on the streets in the city in very, very cold weather. So think about Mitten Project. You see any mittens? Pick them up. For the month of December, we'll get you to drop them off. And what's great about this is you did the footwork. This was your idea. I'm just along for the ride. You're trying to make me look good, and I've signed up for that. <laughs> but you did speak with the Be The Change, and that's one of the main things that they need for those folks living on the streets yep. are the uh, mittens and gloves. So good stuff there.